0: Chapter Seventeen Part Two of News from Nowhere. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. News from Nowhere by William Morris. Chapter Seventeen How the Change Came. Part Two. He filled his glass and mine, and stood up and cried out, Drink this glass to the memory of those who died there for indeed it would be a long tale to tell how much we owe them. I drank, and he sat down again, and went on. The massacre of Trafalgar Square began the civil war, though like all such events it gathered heads slowly, and people scarcely knew what a crisis they were acting in. Terrible as the massacre was, and hideous and overpowering as the first terror had been, when the people had time to think about it, Their feeling was one of anger rather than fear, although the military organization of the state of siege was now carried out without shrinking by the clever young general. For though the ruling classes, when the news spread next morning, felt one gasp of horror and even dread, yet the government and their immediate backers felt that now the wine was drawn and must be drunk. However, even the most reactionary of the capitalist papers, with two exceptions— stunned by the tremendous news, simply gave an account of what had taken place, without making any comment upon it. The exceptions were, one, a so-called liberal paper—the government of the day was of that complexion—which, after a preamble in which it declared its undeviating sympathy with the cause of labour, proceeded to point out that in times of revolutionary disturbance it behoved the government to be just but firm and that by far the most merciful way of dealing with the poor madmen who were attacking the very foundations of society which had made them mad and poor was to shoot them at once so as to stop others from drifting into a position in which they would run a chance of being shot in short it praised the determined action of the government as the acme of human wisdom and mercy and exulted in the inauguration of an epoch of reasonable democracy free from the tyrannical fads of socialism The other exception was a paper thought to be one of the most violent opponents of democracy, and so it was. But the editor of it found his manhood, and spoke for himself and not for his paper. In a few simple indignant words, he asked people to consider what a society was worth which had to be defended by the massacre of unarmed citizens, and called on the government to withdraw their state of siege, and put the general and his officers who fired on the people on their trial for murder. He went further, and declared that whatever his opinion might be as to the doctrines of the socialists, he for one should throw in his lot with the people, until the government atoned for their atrocity by showing that they were prepared to listen to the demands of men who knew what they wanted, and whom the decrepitude of society forced into pushing their demands in some way or other. Of course, this editor was immediately arrested by the military power, but his bold words were already in the hands of the public, and produced a great effect—so great an effect that the government, after some vacillation, withdrew the state of siege, though at the same time it strengthened the military organization and made it more stringent. Three of the Committee of Public Safety had been slain in Trafalgar Square. Of the rest, the greater part went back to their old place of meeting and there awaited the event calmly. They were arrested there on the Monday morning, and would have been shot at once by the general, who was a mere military machine, if the government had not shrunk before the responsibility of killing men without any trial. There was at first a talk of trying them by special commission of judges, as it was called, that is, before a set of men bound to find them guilty, and whose business it was to do so. But with the government the cold fit had succeeded to the hot one, and the prisoners were brought before a jury at the assizes. There a fresh blow awaited the government, for in spite of the judge's charge, which distinctly instructed the jury to find the prisoners guilty, they were acquitted, and the jury added to their verdict a presentment in which they condemned the action of the soldiery, in the queer phraseology of the day, as rash, unfortunate, and unnecessary. The Committee of Public Safety renewed its sittings, and from thenceforth was a popular rallying-point in opposition to the Parliament. The Government now gave way on all sides, and made a show of yielding to the demands of the people, though there was a widespread plot for effecting a coup d'état set on foot between the leaders of the two so-called opposing parties in the Parliamentary Faction fight. The well-meaning part of the public was overjoyed, and thought that all danger of a civil war was over. The victory of the people was celebrated by huge meetings held in the parks and elsewhere, in memory of the victims of the great massacre. But the measures passed for the relief of the workers, though to the upper classes they seemed ruinously revolutionary, were not thorough enough to give the people food and a decent life, and they had to be supplemented by unwritten enactments without legality to back them. Although the Government and Parliament had the law-courts, the army, and society at their backs, the Committee of Public Safety began to be a force in the country, and really represented the producing classes. It began to improve immensely in the days which followed on the acquittal of its members. Its old members had little administrative capacity, though with the exception of a few self-seekers and traitors, they were honest, courageous men, and many of them were endowed with considerable talent of other kinds but now that the times called for immediate action, came forward the men capable of setting it on foot. And a new network of workmen's associations grew up very speedily, whose avowed single object was the tiding over of the ship of the community into a simple condition of communism, and as they practically undertook also the management of the ordinary labour war, they soon became the mouthpiece and intermediary of the whole of the working classes and the manufacturing profit-grinders now found themselves powerless before this combination. Unless their committee—parliament—plucked up courage to begin the civil war again, and to shoot left and right, they were bound to yield to the demands of the men whom they employed, and pay higher and higher wages for shorter and shorter days' work. Yet one ally they had, and that was the rapidly approaching breakdown of the whole system founded on the world market and its supply— which now became so clear to all people, that the middle classes, shocked for the moment into condemnation of the government for the great massacre, turned round nearly in a mass, and called on the government to look to matters, and put an end to the tyranny of the socialist leaders. Thus stimulated, the reactionist plot exploded probably before it was ripe, but this time the people and their leaders were forewarned, and, before the reactionaries could get under way, had taken the steps they thought necessary the Liberal government, clearly by collusion, was beaten by the Conservatives, though the latter were nominally much in the minority. The popular representatives in the House understood pretty well what this meant, and after an attempt to fight the matter out by divisions in the House of Commons, they made a protest, left the House, and came in a body to the Committee of Public Safety, and the civil war began again in good earnest. Yet its first act was not one of mere fighting— The new Tory government, determined to act, yet durst not re-enact the state of siege, but it sent a body of soldiers and police to arrest the Committee of Public Safety in the lump. They made no resistance, though they might have done so, as they had now a considerable body of men who were quite prepared for extremities. But they were determined to try first a weapon which they thought stronger than street-fighting. The members of the committee went off quietly to prison, but they had left their soul and their organization behind them for they depended not on a carefully arranged centre with all kinds of checks and counter-checks about it, but on a huge mass of people in thorough sympathy with the movement, bound together by a great number of links of small centres with very simple instructions. These instructions were now carried out. The next morning, when the leaders of the reaction were chuckling at the effect which the report in the newspapers of their stroke would have upon the public, no newspapers appeared And it was only towards noon that a few straggling sheets, about the size of the Gazettes of the Seventeenth Century, worked by policemen, soldiers, managers, and press writers, were dribbled through the streets. They were greedily seized on and read, but by this time the serious part of their news was stale, and people did not need to be told that the general strike had begun. The railways did not run, the telegraph wires were unserved, Flesh, fish, and green stuff brought to market was allowed to lie there still packed and perishing. The thousands of middle-class families, who were utterly dependent for the next meal on the workers, made frantic efforts through their more energetic members to cater for the needs of the day, and amongst those of them who could throw off the fear of what was to follow, there was, I am told, a certain enjoyment of this unexpected picnic, a forecast of the days to come, in which all labour grew pleasant. So passed the first day and towards evening the government grew quite distracted. They had but one resource for putting down any popular movement, to wit, mere brute force, but there was nothing for them against which to use their army and police. No armed bodies appeared in the streets, the offices of the federated workmen were now, in appearance at least, turned into places for the relief of people thrown out of work, and under the circumstances they durst not arrest the men engaged in such business— All the more, as even that night many quite respectable people applied at these offices for relief, and swallowed down the charity of the revolutionists along with their supper. So the government massed soldiers and police here and there, and sat still for that night, fully expecting on the morrow some manifesto from the rebels, as they now began to be called, which would give them an opportunity of acting in some way or another. They were disappointed. The ordinary newspapers gave up the struggle that morning, and only one very violent reactionary paper, called the Daily Telegraph, attempted an appearance, and rated the rebels in good set terms for their folly and ingratitude in tearing out the bowels of their common mother, the English nation, for the benefit of a few greedy paid agitators, and the fools whom they were deluding. On the other hand, the socialist papers— of which three only, representing somewhat different schools, were published in London, came out full to the throat of well-printed matter. They were greedily bought by the whole public, who, of course, like that government, expected a manifesto in them. But they found no word of reference to the great subject. It seemed as if their editors had ransacked their drawers for articles which would have been in place forty years before, under the technical name of educational articles." Most of these were admirable and straightforward expositions of the doctrines and practice of socialism, free from haste and spite and hard words, and came upon the public with a kind of may-day freshness, amidst the worry and terror of the moment. And though the knowing well understood that the meaning of the move in this game was mere defiance, and a token of irreconcilable hostility to the then rulers of society, and though also they were meant for nothing else by the rebels, yet they really had their effect as educational articles. However, education of another kind was acting upon the public with irresistible power, and probably cleared their heads a little. As to the government, they were absolutely terrified by this act of boycotting—the slang word then current for such acts of abstention. Their counsels became wild and vacillating to the last degree. One hour they were for giving way for the present till they could hatch another plot. The next they all but sent an order for the arrest in the lump of all the workingmen's committees. The next they were on the point of ordering their brisk young general to take any excuse that offered for another massacre. But when they called to mind that the soldiery in that battle of Trafalgar Square were so daunted by the slaughter which they had made, that they could not be got to fire a second volley, they shrank back again from the dreadful courage necessary for carrying out another massacre. Meantime, the prisoners, brought the second time before the magistrates under a strong escort of soldiers, were the second time remanded. The strike went on this day also. The workmen's committees were extended and gave relief to great numbers of people, for they had organized a considerable amount of production of food by men whom they could depend upon. Quite a number of well-to-do people were now compelled to seek relief of them. But another curious thing happened— A band of young men of the upper classes armed themselves, and coolly went marauding in the streets, taking what suited them of such eatables and portables that they came across in the shops which had ventured to open. This operation they carried out in Oxford Street, then a great street of shops of all kinds. The government, being at that hour in one of their yielding moods, thought this a fine opportunity for showing their impartiality in the maintenance of order, and sent to arrest these hungry rich youths who, however, surprised the police by a valiant resistance, so that all but three escaped. The government did not gain the reputation for impartiality which they expected from this move, for they forgot that there was no evening paper. And the account of the skirmish spread wide indeed, but in a distorted form, for it was mostly told simply as an exploit of the starving people from the East End, and everybody thought that it was but natural for the government to put them down when and where they could. That evening the rebel prisoners were visited in their cells by very polite and sympathetic persons, who pointed out to them what a suicidal course they were following, and how dangerous these extreme courses were for the popular cause. Says one of the prisoners, "'It was great sport comparing notes when we came out, about the attempt of the government to get at us separately in prison, and how we answered the blandishments of the highly intelligent and refined persons sent on to pump us.' One laughed, another told extravagant long-bow stories to the envoy, a third held a sulky silence, a fourth damned the polite spy and bade him hold his jaw, and that was all they got out of us. So passed the second day of the great strike. It was clear to all thinking people that the third day would bring on the crisis, for the present suspense and ill-concealed terror was unendurable. The ruling classes and the middle-class non-politicians who had been their real strength and support were as sheep lacking a shepherd. They literally did not know what to do. One thing they found they had to do—try to get the rebels to do something. So the next morning, the morning of the third day of the strike, when the members of the Committee of Public Safety appeared again before the magistrate, they found themselves treated with the greatest possible courtesy— in fact, rather as envoys and ambassadors than prisoners. In short, the magistrate had received his orders, and with no more to do than might come of a long, stupid speech, which might have been written by Dickens in mockery, he discharged the prisoners, who went back to their meeting-place and at once began a due sitting. It was high time. For this third day the Mass was fermenting indeed. There was, of course, a vast number of working people who were not organized in the least in the world men who had been used to act as their masters drove them, or rather as the system drove of which their masters were a part. That system was now falling to pieces, and the old pressure of the master having been taken off these poor men, it seemed likely that nothing but the mere animal necessities and passions of men would have had any hold on them, and that mere general overturn would be the result. Doubtless this would have happened, if it had not been that the huge mass had been leavened by socialist opinion in the first and in the second by actual contact with declared socialists, many or indeed most of whom were members of those bodies of workmen above said. If anything of this kind had happened some years before, when the masters of labour were still looked upon as the natural rulers of the people, and even the poorest and most ignorant men leaned upon them for support, while they submitted to their fleecing, the entire break-up of all society would have followed. But the long series of years during which the workmen had learned to despise their rulers, had done away with their dependence upon them, and they were now beginning to trust—somewhat dangerously, as events proved—in the non-legal leaders whom events had thrust forward, and though most of these were now become mere figureheads, their names and reputations were useful in this crisis as a stop-gap. The effect of the news, therefore, of the release of the Committee, gave the government some breathing-time, for it was received with the greatest joy by the workers and even the well-to-do saw in it a respite from the mere destruction which they had begun to dread, and the fear of which most of them attributed to the weakness of the government. As far as the passing hour went, perhaps they were right in this. "'How do you mean?' said I. "'What could the government have done? I often used to think that they would be helpless in such a crisis,' said old Hammond. "'Of course I don't doubt that in the long run matters would have come about as they did, But if the government could have treated their army as a real army, and used them strategically as a general would have done, looking on the people as a mere open enemy to be shot at and dispersed whenever they turned up, they would probably have gained the victory at the time. "'But would the soldiers have acted against the people in this way?' said I. Said he, "'I think from all I have heard that they would have done so, if they had met bodies of men armed however badly and however badly they had been organized. It seems also, as if before the Trafalgar Square massacre, they might as a whole have been depended upon to fire upon an unarmed crowd, though they were much honeycombed by socialism. The reason for this was that they dreaded the use by apparently unarmed men of an explosive called dynamite, of which many loud boasts were made by the workers on the eve of these events, although it turned out to be of little use as a material for war in the way that was expected— Of course the officers of the soldiery fanned this fear to the utmost, so that the rank and file probably thought on that occasion that they were being led into a desperate battle with men who were really armed, and whose weapon was the more dreadful because it was concealed. After that massacre, however, it was at all times doubtful if the regular soldiers would fire upon an unarmed or half-armed crowd. Said I, the regular soldiers? Then there were other combatants against the people? Yes said he. "'We shall come to that presently.' "'Certainly,' I said. You had better go on straight with your story. I see that time is wearing.' Said Hammond, "'The government lost no time in coming to terms with the Committee of Public Safety, for indeed they could think of nothing else than the danger of the moment. They sent a duly accredited envoy to treat with these men, who somehow had obtained dominion over people's minds, while the formal rulers had no hold except over their bodies.' There is no need at present to go into the details of the truce, for such it was, between these high contracting parties, the government of the Empire of Great Britain, and a handful of working-men, as they were called in scorn in those days, amongst whom indeed were some very capable and square-headed persons, though, as aforesaid, the abler men were not then the recognised leaders. The upshot of it was that all the definite claims of the people had to be granted, We can now see that most of these claims were of themselves not worth either demanding or resisting, but they were looked on at that time as most important, and they were at least tokens of revolt against the miserable system of life which was then beginning to tumble to pieces. One claim, however, was of the utmost immediate importance, and this the government tried hard to evade, but as they were not dealing with fools they had to yield at last. This was the claim of recognition and formal status for the Committee of Public Safety, and all the associations which it fostered under its wing. This, it is clear, meant two things. First, amnesty for the rebels, great and small, who without a distinct act of civil war could no longer be attacked, and the next, a continuance of the organized revolution. Only one point the government could gain, and that was a name the dreadful revolutionary title was dropped, and the body, with its branches, acted under the respectable name of The Board of Conciliation and Its Local Offices. Carrying this name, it became the leader of the people in the civil war which soon followed. "'Oh,' said I, somewhat startled, "'so the civil war went on, in spite of all that had happened.' "'So it was,' said he. In fact, it was this very legal recognition which made the civil war possible in the ordinary sense of war. It took the struggle out of the element of mere massacres on one side, and endurance plus strikes on the other. "'And can you tell me in what kind of way the war was carried on?' said I. "'Yes,' he said. "'We have records and to spare of all that, and the essence of them I can give you in a few words.' As I told you, the rank and file of the army was not to be trusted by the reactionists, but the officers generally were prepared for anything, for they were mostly the very stupidest men in the country. Whatever the government might do, a great part of the upper and middle classes were determined to set on foot a counter-revolution, for the communism which now loomed ahead seemed quite unendurable to them. Bands of young men, like the marauders in the great strike of whom I told you just now, armed themselves and drilled, and began on any opportunity or pretence to skirmish with the people in the streets. The government neither helped them nor put them down, but stood by, hoping that something might come of it. These friends of order, as they were called, had some successes at first, and grew bolder. They got many officers of the regular army to help them, and by their means laid hold of munitions of war of all kinds One part of their tactics consisted in their guarding and even garrisoning a big factory of the period. They held at one time, for instance, the whole of that place called Manchester, which I spoke of just now. A sort of irregular war was carried on with varied success all over the country, and at last the government, which at first pretended to ignore the struggle, or treat it as mere rioting, definitely declared for the Friends of order and joined to their bands whatsoever of the regular army they could get together, and made a desperate last effort to overwhelm the rebels, as they were now once more called, and as indeed they called themselves. It was too late. All ideas of peace on the basis of compromise had disappeared on either side. The end, it was seen clearly, must be either absolute slavery for all but the privileged, or a system of life founded on equality and communism the sloth, the hopelessness, and, if I may say so, the cowardice of the last century, had given place to the eager, restless heroism of a declared revolutionary period. I will not say that the people of that time foresaw the life we are leading now, but there was a general instinct amongst them towards the essential part of that life, and many men saw clearly beyond the desperate struggle of the day into the peace which it was to bring about. The men of that day, who were on the side of freedom, were not unhappy, I think, though they were harassed by hopes and fears, and sometimes torn by doubts, and the conflict of duties hard to reconcile. But how did the people, the revolutionists, carry on the war? What were the elements of success on their side? I put this question because I wanted to bring the old man back to the definite history, and take him out of the musing mood so natural to an old man." he answered. "'Well, they did not lack organisers, for the very conflict itself, in days when, as I told you, men of any strength of mind cast away all consideration for the ordinary business of life, developed the necessary talent amongst them. Indeed, from all I have read and heard, I much doubt whether, without this seemingly dreadful civil war, the due talent for administration would have been developed amongst the working men. Anyhow, it was there— and they soon got leaders far more than equal to the best men amongst the reactionaries. For the rest they had no difficulty about the material of their army, for that revolutionary instinct so acted on the ordinary soldier in the ranks that the greater part, certainly the best part of the soldiers, joined the side of the people. But the main element of their success was this, that wherever the working people were not coerced, they worked not for the reactionists, but for the rebels." The reactionists could get no work done for them outside the districts where they were all-powerful, and even in those districts they were harassed by continual risings, and in all cases and everywhere got nothing done without obstruction and black looks and sulkiness. So that not only were their armies quite worn out with the difficulties which they had to meet, but the non-combatants who were on their side were so worried and beset with hatred and a thousand little troubles and annoyances— that life became almost unendurable to them on those terms. Not a few of them actually died of the worry. Many committed suicide. Of course, a vast number of them joined actively in the cause of reaction, and found some solace to their misery in the eagerness of conflict. Lastly, many thousands gave way and submitted to the rebels, and as the numbers of these latter increased, it at last became clear to all men that the cause which was once hopeless was now triumphant— and that the hopeless cause was that of slavery and privilege. End of chapter seventeen. Part two.